fourteenth book of the Autobiography of Goethe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anthony West. The Autobiography of Goethe, Volume 1, by Johann von Goethe. Translated by John Oxenford. Fourteenth Book, Part Three. Another dreadful feature, wonderfully and portentously, pervades that fair world. Namely, that whatever had been consecrated or vowed must die. This also was probably a usage of war transferred to peace. The inhabitants of a city which forcibly defends itself are threatened with such a vow. It is taken by storm or otherwise. Nothing is left alive. Men never, and often women, children, and even cattle, share a similar fate. Such sacrifices are rashly and superstitiously, and with more or less distinctness, promised to the gods. And those whom the votary would willingly spare, even his nearest of kin, his own children, may thus bleed, the expiatory victims of such a delusion. In the mild and truly patriarchal character of Abraham, such a savage kind of worship could not arise. But the Godhead, which often to tempt us seems to put forth those qualities which man is inclined to assign to it, imposes a monstrous task upon him. Translators note, it should be observed that in this biblical narrative, when we have used the expressions deity, godhead, or divinity, Goethe generally has die Götter, or the gods. He must offer up his son as a pledge of the new covenant, and if he follows the usage, not only kill and burn him, but cut him in two and await between the smoking entrails a new promise from the benignant deity. Abraham, blindly and without lingering, prepares to execute the command. To heaven the will is sufficient. Abraham's trials are now at an end, for they could not be carried farther. But Sarai dies, and this gives Abraham an opportunity for taking typical possession of the land of Canaan. He requires a grave, and this is the first time he looks out for a possession in this earth. He had before this probably sought out a twofold cave by the grove of Mamre. This he purchases with the adjacent field, and the legal form which he observes on the occasion shows how important this possession is to him. Indeed, it was more so perhaps than he himself supposed for there he his sons and his grandsons were to rest and by this means the proximate title to the whole land as well as the everlasting desire of his posterity to gather themselves there was most properly grounded from this time forth the manifold incidents of the family life become varied abraham still keeps strictly apart from the inhabitants and though ishmael the son of an Egyptian woman, has married a daughter of that land, Isaac is obliged to wed a kinswoman of equal birth with himself. 
Abraham dispatches his servant to Mesopotamia, to the relatives whom he had left behind there. The prudent Eliezer arrives unknown, and, in order to take home the bride, tries the readiness to serve of the girls at the well. He asks to be permitted to drink, and Rebekah, unasked, waters his camels also. He gives her presents, he demands her in marriage, and his suit is not rejected. He conducts her to the home of his lord, and she is wedded to Isaac. In this case, too, issue has to be long expected. Rebekah is not blessed until after some years of probation, and the same discord which in Abraham's double marriage arose through two mothers here proceeds from one. Two boys of opposite characters wrestle already in their mother's womb. They come to light, the elder lively and vigorous, the younger gentle and prudent. The former becomes the father's, the latter the mother's, favorite. The strife for precedence, which begins even at birth, is ever going on. Esau is quiet and indifferent as to the birthright which fate has given him. Jacob never forgets that his brother forced him back. Watching every opportunity of gaining the desirable privilege, he buys the birthright of his brother and defrauds him of their father's blessing. Esau is indignant and vows his brother's death. Jacob flees to seek his fortune in the land of his forefathers. Now, for the first time, in so noble a family, appears a member who has no scruple in attaining by prudence and cunning the advantages which nature and circumstances have denied him. It has often enough been remarked and expressed that the sacred scriptures by no means intend to set up any of the patriarchs and other divinely favored men as models of virtue. They, too, are persons of the most different characters, with many defects and failings. But there is one leading trait in which none of these men, after God's own heart, can be wanting. That is, unshaken faith that God has them and their families in his special keeping. General natural religion, properly speaking, requires no faith. For the persuasion that a great producing, regulating, and conducting being conceals himself, as it were, behind nature, to make himself comprehensible to us, such a conviction forces itself upon everyone. Nay, if we for a moment let drop this thread, which conducts us through life, it may be immediately and everywhere resumed. But it is different with a special religion, which announces to us that this great being distinctly and preeminently interests himself for one individual, one family, one people, one country. This religion is founded on faith, which must be immovable if it would not be instantly destroyed. Every doubt of such a religion is fatal to it. One may return to conviction, but not to faith. Hence the endless probation, the delay in the fulfillment of so often repeated promises, by which the capacity for faith in those ancestors is set in the clearest light. It is in this faith, also, that Jacob begins his expedition. 
and if by his craft and deceit he has not gained our affections he wins them by his lasting and inviolable love for rachel whom he himself woos on the instant as eliezer had courted rebecca for his father in him the promise of a countless people was first to be fully unfolded he was to see many sons around him but through them and their mothers was to endure manifold sorrows of heart seven years he serves for his beloved without impatience and without wavering his father-in-law crafty like himself and disposed like him to consider legitimate this means to an end deceives him and so repays him for what he has done to his brother jacob finds in his arms a wife whom he does not love laban indeed endeavors to appease him by giving him his beloved also after a short time and this but on the condition of seven years of further service vexation arises out of vexation the wife he does not love is fruitful the beloved one bears no children the latter like sarai desires to become a mother through her handmaiden the former grudges her even this advantage she also presents her husband with a maid but the good patriarch is now the most troubled man in the world he has four women children by three and none from her he loves finally she also is favored and joseph comes into the world the late fruit of the most passionate attachment jacob's fourteen years of service are over but laban is unwilling to part with him his chief and most trusty servant they enter into a new compact and portion the flocks between them laban retains the white ones as most numerous jacob has to put up with the spotted ones as the mere refuse but he is able here too to secure his own advantage and as by a paltry mess of potage he had procured the birthright and by a disguise his father's blessing he manages by art and sympathy to appropriate to himself the best and largest part of the herds and on this side also he becomes the truly worthy progenitor of the people of israel and a model for his descendants laban and his household remark the result if not the stratagem vexation ensues jacob flees with his family and goods and partly by fortune partly by cunning escapes the pursuit of laban rachel is now about to present him another son but dies in the travail benjamin the child of sorrow survives her but the aged father is to experience a still greater sorrow from the apparent loss of his son joseph perhaps someone may ask why i have so circumstantially narrated histories so universally known and so often repeated and explained let the inquirer be satisfied with the answer that i could in no other way exhibit how with my life full of diversion and with my desultory education i concentrated my mind and feelings in quiet action on one point that i was able in no other way to depict the peace that prevailed about me even when all without was so wild and strange when an ever busy imagination 
of which that tale may bear witness, led me hither and thither, when the medley of fable and history, mythology and religion, threatened to bewilder me, I liked to take refuge in those oriental regions to plunge into the first books of Moses, and to find myself there amid the scattered shepherd tribes, at the same time in the greatest solitude and the greatest society. These family scenes, before they were to lose themselves in a history of the Jewish nation, show us now, in conclusion, a form by which the hopes and fancies of the young in particular are agreeably excited. Joseph, the child of the most passionate wedded love. He seems to us tranquil and clear, and predicts to himself the advantages which are to elevate him above his family. Cast into misfortune by his brothers, he remains steadfast and upright in slavery, resists the most dangerous temptations, rescues himself by prophecy, and is elevated according to his deserts to high honors. He shows himself first serviceable and useful to a great kingdom, then to his own kindred. He is like his ancestor Abraham in repose and greatness, his grandfather Isaac in silence and devotedness. The talent for traffic, inherited from his father, he exercises on a large scale. It is no longer flocks which are gained for himself from a father-in-law, but nations, with all their possessions, which he knows how to purchase for a king. Extremely graceful is this natural story, only it appears too short, and one feels called upon to paint it in detail. Such a filling up of biblical characters and events, given only in outline, was no longer strange to the Germans. The personages of both the Old and New Testaments had received through Klopstock a tender and affectionate nature, highly pleasing to the boy, as well as to many of his contemporaries. Of Bodmer's efforts in this line, little or nothing came to him, but Daniel in the Lion's Den, by Moser, made a great impression on the young heart. In that work, a right-minded man of business and courtier arrives at high honors through manifold tribulations, and the piety for which they threatened to destroy him became, early and late, his sword and buckler. It had long seemed to me desirable to work out the history of Joseph, but I could not get on with the form particularly as I was conversant with no kind of versification which would have been adapted to such a work. But now I found a treatment of it in prose very suitable, and I applied all my strengths to its execution. I now endeavored to discriminate and paint the characters, and by the interpolation of incidents and episodes, to make the old, simple history a new and independent work. I did not consider what, indeed, youth cannot consider, that subject matter was necessary to such a design, and that this could only arise by the perceptions of experience. Suffice it to say that I represented to myself all the incidents down to the minutest details, and narrated them accurately to myself in their succession. What greatly lightened this labor was a circumstance which threatened to render this work and my authorship in general exceedingly voluminous. A well-gifted young man 
who, however, had become imbecile from overexertion and conceit, resided as a ward in my father's house, lived quietly with the family, and, if allowed to go on in his usual way, was contented and agreeable. He had, with great care, written out notes of his academical course, and acquired a rapid, legible hand. He liked to employ himself in writing better than in anything else, and was pleased when something was given him to copy, but still more when he was dictated to, because he then felt carried back to his happy academical years. To my father, who was not expeditious in writing, and whose German letters were small and tremulous, nothing could be more desirable, and he was consequently accustomed, in the conduct of his own and other business, to dictate for some hours a day to this young man. I found it no less convenient, during the intervals, to see all that passed through my head, fixed upon paper, by the hand of another, and my natural gift of feeling and imitation grew with the facility of catching up and preserving. As yet, I had not undertaken any work so large as that biblical prose epic. The times were tolerably quiet, and nothing recalled my imagination from Palestine and Egypt. Thus my manuscripts swelled more and more every day, as the poem, which I recited to myself, as it were, in the air, stretched along the paper, and only a few pages from time to time needed to be rewritten. When the work was done, for to my own astonishment it really came to an end, I reflected that from former years many poems were extant, which did not even now appear to me utterly despicable, and which, if written together in the same size with Joseph, would make a very neat quarto to which the title Miscellaneous Poems might be given. I was pleased with this, as it gave me an opportunity of quietly imitating well-known and celebrated authors. I had composed a good number of so-called anacreontic poems, which on account of the convenience of the meter and the lightness of the subject, flowed forth readily enough. But these I could not well take, as they were not in rhyme and my desire, before all things, was to show my father something that would please him. So much the more, therefore, did the spiritual odes seem suitable, which I had very zealously attempted in imitation of the last judgment of Elias Schlegel. One of these, written to celebrate the descent of Christ into hell, received much applause from my parents and friends, and had the good fortune to please myself for some years afterwards. The so-called texts of the Sunday church music, which were always to be had printed, I studied with diligence. They were, indeed, very weak, and I could well believe that my verses, of which I had composed many in the prescribed manner, were equally worthy of being set to music and performed for the edification of the congregation. These, and many like them, I had for more than a year before copied with my own hand, because through this private exercise I was released from the copies of the writing-master. Now all were corrected and put in order, and no great persuasion was needed to have them neatly copied by the young man who was so fond of writing. I hastened with them to the bookbinder, and when very soon after I handed the nice-looking volume to my father, 
he encouraged me with peculiar satisfaction to furnish a similar quarto every year, which he did with the greater conviction, as I had produced the whole in my spare moments alone. Another circumstance increased my tendency to these theological, or rather biblical, studies. The senior of the ministry, John Philip Fresenius, a mild man of handsome, agreeable appearance, who was respected by his congregation and the whole city as an exemplary pastor and good preacher, but who, because he stood forth against the Herr was not in the best odor with the peculiarly pious, while, on the other hand, he had made himself famous and almost sacred with the multitude by the conversion of a free-thinking general who had been mortally wounded. This man died, and his successor, Plitt, a tall, handsome, dignified man who brought from his chair, he had been a professor in Marburg, the gift of teaching rather than of edifying, immediately announced a sort of religious course to which his sermons were to be devoted in a certain methodical connection. I had already, as I was compelled to go to church, remarked the distribution of the subject, and could now and then show myself off by a pretty complete recitation of a sermon. But now, as much was said in the congregation, both for and against the new senior, and many placed no great confidence in his announced didactic sermons, I undertook to write them out more carefully and I succeeded the better from having made smaller attempts in a seat very convenient for hearing, but concealed from sight. I was extremely attentive and on the alert. The moment he said amen, I hastened from church and spent a couple of hours in rapidly dictating what I had fixed in my memory and on paper, so that I could hand in the written sermon before dinner. My father, who was very proud of this success, and the good friend of the family, who had just come in to dinner, also shared in the joy. Indeed, this friend was very well disposed towards me, because I had made his Messiah so much my own, that in my repeated visits paid to him with a view of getting impressions of seals for my collection of coats of arms, I could recite long passages from it till the tears stood in his eyes. The next Sunday... I prosecuted the work with equal zeal, and as the mechanical part of it mainly interested me, I did not reflect upon what I wrote and preserved. During the first quarter, these efforts may have continued pretty much the same, but as I fancied at last, in my self-conceit, that I found no particular enlightenment as to the Bible, nor clearer insight into dogmas, the small vanity which was thus gratified seemed to me too dearly purchased for me to pursue the matter with the same zeal. The sermons, once so many-leaved, grew more and more lean, and before long I should have relinquished this labor altogether if my father, who was a fast friend to completeness, had not, by words and promises, induced me to persevere till the last Sunday in Trinity, though at the conclusion Scarcely more than the text, the statement, and the divisions were scribbled on little pieces of paper. My father was particularly pertinacious on this point of completeness. What was once undertaken had to be finished, even if the inconvenience, tedium, vexation, nay uselessness of the thing begun were plainly manifested in the meantime. 
It seemed as if he regarded completeness as the only end and perseverance as the only virtue. If in our family circle and the long winter evenings we had begun to read a book out aloud, we were compelled to finish, though we were all in despair about it, and my father himself was the first to yawn. I still remember such a winter, when we had thus to work our way through Bower's History of the Popes. It was a terrible time, as little or nothing that occurs in ecclesiastical affairs can interest children and young people. Still, with all my inattention and repugnance, so much of that reading remained in my mind that I was able, in after times, to take up many threads of the narrative. Amid all these heterogeneous occupations and labors, which followed each other so rapidly that one could hardly reflect whether they were permissible and useful, my father did not lose sight of the main object. He endeavored to direct my memory and my talent for apprehending and combining to objects of jurisprudence, and therefore gave me a small book by Hopp in the shape of a catechism, and worked up according to the form and substance of the institutions. I soon learned questions and answers by heart, and could represent the catechist as well as the catechumen, and, as in religious instruction at that time, one of the chief exercises was to find passages in the Bible as readily as possible. So here a similar acquaintance with the corpus juris was found necessary, in which also I soon became completely versed. My father wished me to go on, and the little Struve was taken in hand, but here affairs did not proceed so rapidly. The form of the work was not so favorable for beginners, that they could help themselves on nor was my father's method of illustration so liberal as greatly to interest me. Not only by the warlike state in which we lived for some years, but also by civil life itself and the perusal of history and romances, was it made clear to me that there were many cases in which the laws were silent and give no help to the individual, who must then see how to get out of the difficulty by himself. We had now reached the period when, according to the old routine, we were to learn, besides other things, fencing and riding, that we might guard our skins upon occasion and present no pedantic appearance on horseback. As to the first, the practice was very agreeable to us, for we had already long ago contrived to make broad swords out of hazel sticks, with basket hilts neatly woven of willow to protect the hands. Now we might get real steel blades, and the clash we made with them was very merry. There were two fencing masters in the city, an old, earnest German who went to work in a severe and solid style, and a Frenchman who sought to gain his advantage by advancing and retreating, and by light, fugitive thrusts, which he always accompanied by cries. Opinions varied as to whose manner was the best. The little company with which I was to take lessons sided with the Frenchman, and we speedily accustomed ourselves to move backwards and forwards, make passes and recover, always breaking out into the usual exclamations. But several of our acquaintance had gone to the German teacher, and practiced precisely the opposite. These distinct modes of treating so important an exercise, the conviction of each that his master was the best, really caused a dissension among the young people who were of about the same age, 
and the fencing schools occasioned serious battles, for there was almost as much fighting with words as with swords, and to decide the matter in the end a trial of skill between the two teachers was arranged, the consequences of which I need not circumstantially describe. The German stood in his position like a wall, watched his opportunity, and contrived to disarm his opponent over and over again with his cut and thrust. The latter maintained that this mattered not, and proceeded to exhaust the other's wind by his agility. He fetched the Germans several lunges too, which, however, if they had been in earnest, would have sent him into the next world. On the whole, nothing was decided or improved, except that some went over to the countrymen, of whom I was one, but I had already acquired too much from the first master, and hence a considerable time elapsed before the new one could break me of it, who was altogether less satisfied with us renegades than with his original pupils. With riding I fared still worse. It happened that they sent me to the course in the autumn, so that I commenced in the cool and damp season. The pedantic treatment of this noble art was highly repugnant to me. From first to last, the whole talk was about sitting the horse, and yet no one could say in what a proper sitting consisted, though all depended on that, for they went to and fro on the horse without stirrups. Moreover, the instruction seemed contrived only for cheating and degrading the scholars. If one forgot to hook or loosen the curb chain, or let his switch fall down, or even his hat, every delay, every misfortune, had to be atoned for by money, and one was laughed at into the bargain. This put me in the worst of humors, particularly as I found the place of exercise itself quite intolerable. The wide, nasty space, either wet or dusty, the cold, the moldy smell, altogether was in the highest degree repugnant to me. And since the stable-master always gave the others the best and me the worst horses to ride, perhaps because they bribed him by breakfasts and other gifts, or even by their own cleverness, since he kept me waiting and, as it seemed, slighted me, I spent the most disagreeable hours in an employment that ought to have been the most pleasant in the world. Nay, the impression of that time and of these circumstances has remained with me so vividly that although I afterwards became a passionate and daring rider, and for days and weeks together scarcely got off my horse, I carefully shunned covered riding courses, and at least passed only a few moments in them. The case often happens that when the elements of an exclusive art are taught us, this is done in a painful and revolting manner. The conviction that this is both wearisome and injurious has given rise in later times to the educational maxim that the young must be taught everything in an easy, cheerful, and agreeable way, from which, however, other evils and disadvantages have proceeded. End of the Fourteenth Book, Part 3 Recording by Anthony West